I think today's cultural mindset easily dismisses the book of Hosea. This is the theme of God judging a nation with a hostile takeover and people needing to live under the precepts of God. These are not popular notions. I mean, some in the modern church may want to kind of reframe the plain messages in the book to make it something more palatable. So possible new titles might be living your best life now before the takeover, my body, my freedom, my idol, or eat, pray, love to whomever or whatever. You could come up with your own title, but I think you get the picture. The book of Hosea is a call to any nation that pridefully and even gleefully forgets God. The sins of Israel remind nations today, including our own, that God is not asleep. He is not asleep. Now, in contrast to recasting a nation's sins, listen to God's perspective of Israel in the book of Hosea. Hosea 4.2, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Verse 18, when their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. In Hosea 6.7, we are told they transgressed the covenants. Hosea 8.4 speaks of idol worshiping. Hosea 7.4 says, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. In addition, we read about the religious leaders who were corrupt and lacking in the knowledge of God. So, as we consider the sins of this nation and our own nation, I think it causes us to think of our own hearts being open. Okay, God, what are you saying to us? What's for us today? And I think there's plenty. And I'm thankful for this book that is a clarion call for the righteousness of God. Now, we're not Israel, I get that, all right? America is not God's people, different from another country, I get that. We're not a theocracy, I get that. But still, every nation is called accountable to God. Every leader is called accountable to God, just like every life will be called accountable to God. So let's take a look at this passage. Let's all stand as we look at Hosea 10, 9 through 15. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, 
You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. You might remember Gibeah as the place of a loathsome sin of rape and murder. The dead woman's body was dismembered. I won't get into all the details of the story, but take my word for it. The dead woman's body was dismembered and spread throughout the land to each tribe. Basic levels of decency and familial love were absent. And notice what Hosea says, there they have continued, telling us they have not improved. The member tribes demanded that the Benjamites deliver the citizens of Gibeah for punishment. Benjamin refused. Israel turned on the Benjamites for harboring the evildoers and uh, for condoning their actions. The Benjamites were nearly annihilated in an ensuing war. All of Israel knew of that sin. They knew the terrible fate that awaited Israel because of it. And now what Hosea is saying, the same is coming to you again. When I please, I will discipline them and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Here we see the extent and timing for the consequences of sin are something that God chooses, not something that we choose. God will deliver these consequences as he wills. When he chooses, Assyria will invade Israel as a consequence for Israel's sin. And the sin is called double iniquity. Now, iniquity is a term that speaks of a, of a willful rebellion. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to step over the line, and I'm, it's, a, it's a willful rebellion. And it's a double iniquity. This could mean there was the former sin at Gibeah, and now the present sin of Israel or it could mean their sin of idolatry and also their dependence upon a foreign alliance. Either way, their guilt is multiplied and it is evident. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Now this verse is a take on God's intent for Israel, and I think by implication for his people. He gives us what we can handle at the beginning of our relationship with him without overrunning us or breaking our neck. But through maturation that comes through hardship, he trains us to carry further weight and more difficult tasks. When a young calf would thresh, uh, it would walk on top of the, of the grain of corn stalks without damaging the kernels. And this would be without a muzzle, so it could eat. 
It's why we read in Deuteronomy 25.4, not to muzzle the ox that is treading on the grain. So in other words, it was comparatively light work, almost enjoyable. This was true of Israel's history. God gave Israel the land of Palestine already ready with produce in it. Palestine came as a gift, as a promise, with existing vineyards and orchards. Everyone loves that type of blessing where God gives us prosperity. And many Christian leaders never leave this theme and give the impression that all the Christian life is meant for this kind of blessing. Rarely is there a word about sacrifice, endurance, hardship, suffering. God's design was to mature his people So he put a yoke on Ephraim or Israel. Now this has a dual meaning of referring to our walk with God in general and to Israel in particular. To teach her a lesson. To listen to God's voice even when difficulties come. We have to continue to obey. Judah, the southern kingdom, is included in this picture. This is the idea of obedience, and hardship that most Christians labor to understand and even less practice. Remember the disciples? Jesus starts ramping up the commitment, talking about suffering, serving, and the crowds begin to what? Thin out. Even his own disciples when it came to suffering At the cross, there was one. Not too different than today. The hard work of plowing replaces the easy work of threshing. Jacob, harrowing, speaks of the northern kingdom. Harrowing used an implement to break up the soul and uproot the weeds. And this is the hardest of work. Not many folks endure when the work gets hard. Israel would be asked to endure a foreign nation, the exile with Assyria. Even in that state, with exile, they're still responsible to God, still responsible to listen to his voice, even when it's really difficult. I think such a passage challenges every faith community to consider what kind of Christian life are they displaying or are they pitching to people? Let us remember it's not all prosperity and blessing and it's not all hardship. Life includes both, but our hearts are to be turned to God, seeking God, submissive to him, whether we wear the muzzle or not. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ's own identification of his nature was that he was meek and lowly, as Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says. The word meek means leadable, receptive. It describes an animal 
brought under the control of the bit and the reins, brought under the control of its master. Lowly means teachable. Put that on your church sign. We're lowly, meek. That's not the American way. In his humanity, the son was subservient and obedient to the father. Obedient to the point of death. Obedient to the point of a cross for redemption. I don't know, many look to a community of faith and you think, boy, God must really bless them. What do you think of? Money? Buildings? Numbers? I'm not saying that's not God's blessing, but I'm not sure that's the premier blessing of God or the identification of a real community of faith that has God's mark on it. A more fitting characteristic for a community of faith is that their wills are submitted to God. And the fruit of that is obedience, giving, serving, humility. We can say, you know, You want to be a part of our place, nothing but blessing, baby. Come on and join us. God's got your best life now. Or you can say, come with us. You'll learn to serve, humble yourself, endure, and be obedient in hard times. Love one another when it's difficult. Enjoy unity. That's the hardest work you've ever done. That's what we offer to people today which is really the mark of a community of faith. These characteristics come to those, I think, who wear the yoke of Jesus. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You've plowed iniquity, you've reaped injustice, you've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. It's kind of like the words of a lover that has been cheated on. The Lord holds out still the fruit of a loving relationship if Israel will repent. That guilty spouse will repent. I see grace here. It's unbelievable through these 10 chapters, the hammering that keeps coming. This is who you are, Israel. And then God is saying, I offer to you this loving relationship. There's forgiveness here. But to have the loving relationship, it what? It takes two people, right? If Israel were to commit to God's law and cultivate righteousness, they will reap a loving relationship. But they have to break up their hard hearts and seek the Lord by humbling themselves and repent of their sin. Earlier on, we read how they had the words of repentance, but they didn't have the actions. Even in this midst of book about judgment, God gives them a path for grace. Keeping agricultural metaphors, Israel was to have been plowing the fields, sowing the seeds of righteousness, depending only on the Lord for 
productivity and fruitfulness. To seek the Lord means that they devote themselves exclusively to God and pursue his will. But Israel plants, it reaps, what it reaps, it eats. And the witness of Hosea is that the culture of Israel has trafficked in lies. They have rejected God's truth, and that's why they are at where they're at. And they have relied on a human system and put their trust in human military strength to protect them. Think of today. Human institutions, nothing wrong with them by themselves, programs, systems, companies, countries, families, and even churches can all possess something within the culture that rejects God's truth. Now, of course, if it's a church, it's never publicly, well, sometimes it is actually, (laughs) rejecting God's word. But behind the scenes, you see there's something else that's driving them other than God's word. And I think as a congregation, we have to take an honest look at ourselves and consider how we can steer people away from this happiness syndrome, training them to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Because you can expect when God's word is faithfully taught, there's going to be friction with our flesh, with all of us. I don't like that. Well, neither do I sometimes. But it's what God is saying. So we can either submit ourselves to him or we can just go find another group that agrees with us. Who we choose to listen to at those points determines if we mature as a disciple of Christ. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil at dawn. The king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. The language produces graphic war scenes. Bethel, the center of national worship, bears the fortresses and cities turned to rubble. The enemy fills mass graves with bodies of women and children. Now, the identity of Shaman and of Beth Arbel, frankly, are uncertain. Commentators say different things. There have been several suggestions that the name Shaman means Shamanasser the third who campaigned as far as Israel when he taking an excursion against Syria. Whatever the battle, whatever the place, it was remembered for its atrocities. The point is, is that Israel is to think of that and then think of a coming, pending doom. And Israel did not repent. And in 722 BC, they fell to the Assyrian army and the 10 tribes of Israel were rendered powerless. Israel's defeat would be so swift that their king would be cut down before the battle had scarcely begun. The wisdom literature of the Bible offers this take. 
Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Or blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. As plain as I can ask it, do you think that describes us today as a nation? Does that describe our leaders? I'm not coming with condemnation. I'm just trying to take God's word, reflect it upon us today and say, man, what can we do here? And how can we recognize this? What can we learn when God's law is rejected as Israel did? Now, we don't know how many Israelites were true believers, how many weren't, but I can tell you this. We know that Christians today, at least who call themselves that, can reject God's law, if not in total, in particular. Maybe at the times you think, I don't care what God has to say about money, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what God has to say about marriage and divorce, I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what God has to say about forgiveness, I'm going to do what I want. So we are in those cases rejecting God's word as our authority. And so Christians get sucked into the cultural milieu. So what I'm saying is, we're not talking about the other guy. Talking about us, right? And I think that there are some characteristics of what happens in a a culture and even in a church when God's truth is rejected just like Israel did. These certainly are not exhaustive, but here's some. And And these themes aren't even new. I've talked about this before. But in this context, I think it's very fitting. The first thing is this, that what happens is that people will recast denial of God's law in glowing terms. When you reject God's law, it's typical of human beings to modify their rejection of God in congratulatory terms, such as, do we not see this in our culture everywhere? Freedom. Uh, Being intellectually honest. Love that one. Individuality. Tolerance. Love. A host of other words that reframe their disobedience. I read recently how abortion the killing of another human being is an act of love. (laughs) Really? An act of love. Murder is love. Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Now listen, if you've had an abortion, I'm, I'm not trying to give you condemnation. I want to give you hope, forgiveness in the grace of God. But as a culture, what we see is this embracing of evil. And we're recasting it as something other than it is. We're not reading the words of Hosea. We're recasting to make ourselves look better. Secondly, there's something else that's going to be sought to replace God's order. Ecclesiastes 3.11, we're told that God has put a vestige of eternity in the heart of every person. 
That includes no matter a person of any religion. That includes an atheist. They still have this thing within them. It's a way of saying that humans, all humans, yearn for something beyond themselves. You have this need that only God can meet. But when they deny God's law, when they deny God, the need doesn't cease. So when humans reject God's moral order, they're going to try to attach themselves to something else, even though it's twisted because that's what their nature is saying. And so humans derive a self-proclaimed moral order that seeks to fill the heart's yearning. The desire is good, but the answer apart from God is destructive. Take today's virtue signaling that publicly expresses an opinion to demonstrate perceived good character without biblical imperatives. And it's accompanied by self-congratulations. Social media and entertainment stars utilize influence to propagate these man-made rules. And you know what it is? It is now a new kind of legalism. It is a secular legalism. It's a secular fundamentalism that you better get on board with this PC stuff or else you are canceled. And this is being established to respond to sexuality, pandemics, politics, race, and a host of other topics. And thirdly, this is how some in the church are responding. Disunity occurs when the gospel is subjugated with a man-made code. The loss of proportion comes when we supersede the priority of the gospel that unites us for a virtue signaling that divides us. So now we have Christians deciding their places of fellowship, not based on Christ or the gospel, but on views of masking, vaccines, race, politics, and other social agendas. And listen, the issue is not what is your issue. The, the issue is placing it above the gospel as the reason that we are united as Christians. And what I'm saying is, we ought to, if the gospel works, we ought to be able to fellowship together even though we may disagree on some of those things I just mentioned. Because it's the gospel that unites us. Now think back of the Jews and the Gentiles in Galatians 2 and how difficult it was for these two to come together. And even some of the apostles were having difficulty saying, I'm going to hobnob with the Jews because those Gentiles, they're just dirty people. I don't have anything to do with them. They live different. They have a different view. I mean, it was incredible, the differences. And Paul comes, he says, hey, listen, you can't do this because the gospel is what unites us. But instead, what we have, we have this secular fundamentalism. It's really no different than the fundamentalism I grew up, you know, as a teenager in the 70s and 80s. People in churches would want to find churches that agreed with them about rock music or card playing. Some of you who grew up in the church, remember if you grew up in the more conservative branch. And that determined what church you go to. 
I mean, it's so funny to look at it now, right? I mean, to make a cultural issue that is not addressed in the Bible more important than the gospel is a kind of legalism. It is akin to self-righteousness that plagued the early church with circumcision and then this division between the Jews and the Greek. But it's the gospel that brought them together. It was the gospel that tore down the dividing wall and that brings unity. Do we really believe the gospel? Do we really believe the power of the gospel? Again, you can have discussions and disagree with people on a whole host of these things, but at the end of the day, we have to lock arms and say, listen, I still love you. We are still united in Christ, and it doesn't matter what you think on those things. I can still fellowship with you and love you if the gospel is real. And if you want to show to people that the gospel is not real, then you go ahead and divide over it on all those other things. And that's the threshing. I don't want the hard work. I don't want the yoke. And God is saying, maturity comes by having the hard conversations. Maturity comes by working out these things and not demanding that people have to agree on all of this for unity. But we come together under the banner of Christ. Let's be clear. The reframing of sins to fit our likes and dislikes, filling our hearts with virtue signaling, supplanting the gospel with cultural items for unity is a result of not seeking God and his moral order. So if we learn a lesson from Hosea, it's number one, God is not asleep. And the consequences of rebelling against him are going to continue. But his grace and availability for humble hearts to come to him are always available. And so daily, our job is to come together under Christ and enjoy the unity. Unity doesn't mean I like everything. Unity doesn't mean I agree with everything. I've told you this before. I don't even agree with my wife on everything. We've been married for 41 years. We disagree about some political things, about other things, but I love her. She is my bride. She is my best friend. We can enjoy intimacy with one another in all aspects, but it's not based on agreement all these other things, but that we know Christ. And that's the way it is in the body of Christ. Let's pray.